They're very clever people. They planned everything right from the beginning. They probably made some sort of deal with Guy. They gave him success, and he promised them our baby to use in their rituals. I know this sounds crazy, but I've, I've got books here. Look. There was another actor like him, Donald Baumgart, and they put a spell on him. They cast a spell on him and made him blind so that Guy could get his part. Look, here. I had this friend, Edward Hutchins. Maybe you heard of him, a writer. He wrote stories for boys. Anyway, he was my good friend since I first came to New York. May I keep this? Yes, please. And look, anyway, once Mr. Hutchins came to visit me, came to visit me, it was the time I was having this pain, doctor. I was suffering so... You can't imagine how much I was suffering. And they wouldn't help me. Nobody would. They were giving me a drink with tannis root in it. Also, witch's stuff, tannis root. Hutch came and immediately saw something was wrong. He, he knew about witches, you see. Suddenly, Guy rushed in with his makeup still on, which he never did. They probably called him to come home and steal one of Hutch's belongings, which he did, took his glove, and they put a spell on him, too. Put him in a coma. Three months later, he died. Now, maybe all this is coincidence, but one thing is for sure. They have a coven, and they want my baby. Certainly seems that way. Okay, let's see. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. I am the eater of wolves and of children. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare. Welcome to another devilish installment of the greatest, greatest October in the history of forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 198, Rosemary's Baby. So we're on the uh, downward slope now of the greatest, greatest October. Running out of entries, but this is a good one. 1968, directed by Roman Polanski, written by Polanski, based on the novel by... Ira Levin, one of the most classic, respected horror films ever, influential. Yeah, certainly. Pretty much every time one of these movies comes out now where it's like the whole not scary but steadily creepy, unsettling throughout, it seems like it is always compared to Rosemary's Baby. So before we jump into this one, this might be a big one, it might be a little longer, let's remind our... Listeners to follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. 
give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. So let's talk Polanski. <laughs> let's just get it out of the way. It's a unfortunately recurring segment these days. We haven't done it for a few weeks, but we have to sort of preface things with a little bit of a disclaimer. Mm-hmm. Yes, we are aware <laughs> of what Roman Polanski pled guilty to and then yep. fled the country right. and is essentially an outlaw. And of course, in the modern Me Too era, more people came forward and there were more accusations against him even beyond the one that exiled him from this country. It is weird yeah. how less than 20 years ago, it seemed like Hollywood was very supportive of Polanski and there were tons of famous people signing petitions to allow him to come back. And now everything <laughs> yeah. is You can't imagine a, that happening a lot now, different. right? I'm glad you're getting it out though, because it is, I, I do feel like I'm going to come off as very much a fan of Polanski because I do think this movie is his personal life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, this movie is just like so well put together. So well crafted. I I just think he is a great director. Certainly not supportive of the other things that have happened. I think as I've gotten into the criterion collection, you know, it's kind of got me into his early stuff, repulsion, cul-de-sac. I haven't watched the fearless vampire killers yet, but I do own it on (laughs) Blu-ray. And then, Rosemary's Baby, I would say since I've got into the Criterion Collection Blu-rays, there have been two classic movies that I had seen either part of before or most of before that I've gotten into since owning them on Criterion and and, and I would say have really skyrocketed to the tops of my all-time favorite charts and, that, and that's The Graduate and Rosemary's Baby. I'm really in on Polanski as a director. I, I know it's not good <laughs> for what, what's gone on in his life outside of directing, but I, I'm a fan. Yeah, so if the fact that we're going to talk about a movie he directed bothers you and you don't want to listen, then, you know, that that's fine. That makes sense. But as a podcast, we've always sort of focused on the art and not the artist yeah. necessarily. I think you can condemn the man's actions but still enjoy something that he put out there this movie came out basically like a decade before all that shit went down i don't know about the other accusations like the timeline of that stuff but you know it is what it is and we're we're living in that world where we have to come to grips with the actions of people whose work we we may admire but rosemary's baby even beyond the Polanski of it all, has endured as this classic horror film. It was so big, and one thing that always, that I always associate with it now, is even them referencing it and talking about it in Mad Men and stuff oh, like that. Because right. it was yeah. like such a cultural movie. It was so much a part of the zeitgeist of the time. Its budget was only three point two million, and the box office was. 33.4 million but this was a time where making over 30 million was a huge achievement this was like one of the biggest movies of the year sure yeah the price of movies it was like 50 cents to get right. into so 33.4 million is a huge movie and it's r-rated and the subject matter is considerably shocking for that time period much like oh, yeah. the exorcist not quite on that level <laughs> <laughs> but this movie came out five years before The Exorcist, and I think certainly paved the way for that kind of subject matter. Yeah, well, you bring up Mad Men. 
this movie just makes me think of Mad Men just because of that aesthetic, that New York City in the 60s, which works great for the setting of the movie. Rosemary's Baby is the story of a young pregnant woman who slowly begins to suspect that an evil satanic cult wants to take her baby for use in their rituals. But what is it that makes Rosemary's Baby so effective? What is it that makes other directors like Stanley Kubrick and Quentin Tarantino, amongst others, such big fans of this movie? It's the slow burn. I think one of the important choices in the film, and the film is very much adapted from this novel. It's very closely adapted. It's very similar. Yeah, you told me that about how, like what percentage of the dialogue is like huge percentage of the dialogue from the book, which is cool. And all of like the little details and stuff too. But Polanski was adamant that there be no supernatural elements present until possibly the end of the film, which of course when we talk about that, you don't even really see. I guess the the things that I would consider seeming supernatural, one scene in particular, I guess you're supposed to make of that that it just could be a dream? Yeah. Okay. So they were hyper-focused on realism, and they achieved the realism through a lot of different ways, long, unbroken takes done in like the maison-scene, maison-scene style, where essentially like the camera will move from one area to another oh, yeah. and then it's like stuff is still happening that's right off camera so you get that sense of it being like an actual world where there's life existing beyond the frame i think personally one of the things that makes it so effective is the universality of it there's not particularly anything unique or interesting about rosemary herself and so this feels like it could happen to anyone, and it's such a relatable situation yeah. for women, especially in that time period of the 1960s. And that, to me, is the biggest thing, is beyond what the message is about morality or Catholicism or Satan or Satanism, it's really about the role of women in the American household and their limitations and how they were boxed right. in and trapped she into their lives. Just a pretty farm girl, you know, moving to the big city with her actor husband. So Polanski sets this up in a way where we question Rosemary's reliability because essentially the film is shown through her point of view throughout. But like I said, since there's nothing definitive as proof, there's always a seed of doubt as to whether or not this is really happening. Is she yeah. being paranoid or is it real? I, I'm erring on the side of this is 100% real, though. <laughs> I, well, I think like the way. end of the movie is the confirmation. Well, that's the but, I, yeah. yeah. I just mean, as I watched the movie, I'm 100% in on this storyline. Like, I, I'm not ever really thinking that it's her and she's crazy. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do think that during this time period, the the movie takes place during 65 and 66. The book came out in 67. The movie came out in 68. There was a rise in Satanism in popular culture. It it became sort of chic a little bit. How about that? People like Anton LaVey and musicians and famous people sort of being into like Aleister Crowley and all that shit. So people do fixate on the satanic element of the film of course but i think that rosemary's baby is essentially rooted in fears beyond satan and the supernatural 
very basic things, relatable things, paranoia, a woman's place in the 1960s and how isolated they could be, how trapped, as this is sort of happening concurrently with the women's liberation movement. Rosemary is very much a woman of her time where she doesn't work. In the movie, we never see her interact with her family. As far as we know, she doesn't have a family. Yeah, it is weird that she's so close with Hutch, and that's kind of it. And yeah, and her friends uh, will eventually be slowly cut out of her life as much as possible. But even beyond that, how well do you know your neighbors? How well do you know your partner, the person you're with? Yeah, that's almost like the darkest part of this movie for me is everything that... (laughs) The fact that her husband is just so easily lured into selling her out. Yeah, I think we should point out that throughout this, we're probably just going to spoil different parts of the movie out of order. So it's, you know, it's not exactly like watching the movie when we talk about this. Like, we're basically going to be talking about the ending throughout it. Yeah. I would imagine. That's fine. In addition, primal maternal fears is something wrong with my baby. Urban existential dread and Polanski would return to this a couple of times throughout his career. It started with Repulsion, and then he made a movie in the 70s called The Tenant. Okay, I haven't seen The Tenant. This, like, trapped-in apartment, urban paranoia, and then, like I said, loss of morality existing, potentially the, the rise of Satanism, the distancing from traditional religious values. But I think that you can interpret Rosemary's Baby and the message of it in so many different ways that you don't necessarily have to to read it that way that like oh this is about a return to traditional values this is more about a commentary on women's liberation and their place in society and their the way that they're sort of boxed in and trapped and unable to like escape their marriage because i would say she gets uh out from under her husband by the end of this movie it feels like possibly yeah but maybe it seems also like she may be choosing the traditional Role. things that yeah. that a woman is supposed to want o- above all else and at any cost. So she ultimately decides to be the mother to the baby and everything. But I think more recent feminist critiques of the film focus more on the loss of control, which is very relatable, the loss of bodily autonomy. I don't know if I said that word. Autonomy? Right. Yeah, I guess it's always like a, a prescient topic, but abortion... A woman's right to have control over her own body. If you notice during various points of this, she's essentially surrounded by men who are controlling her life, oh, yeah. telling her what to do, scolding her, not allowing her to do things that she yeah. wants to do, well, not they, allowing her to make any choices. I think they do it with Guy, the husband, in an interesting, a little bit more subtle way because he's not really oppressive towards her, but there is like this ownership. Yeah. quality there he's always like kind of putting his hand on her butt right and like controlling her in that sort of way it's very subtle but he he does like a lot of things that you would typically associate with that sort of behavior yeah and even the way that he talks to her and stuff there's just this underlying like i said ownership i'm the boss yeah and of course the ticking time bomb at the center of the film is a pregnancy which is nine months and is like a great way to set up and build drama and dread and tension it's like well we know that something's going to happen in nine months and the movie takes place over i don't know almost and we did get a a look albeit briefly as to what the father looks like (laughs) 
<laughs> Seems like uh, this could be an issue here. Rosemary's Baby was Polanski's first American feature film. He was brought in by Paramount exec Robert Evans, who was involved in a lot of major motion pictures in the late 60s into the 70s, including the first two Godfather films. He lured him in with the script for Downhill Racer because Polanski was a big skiing buff. He ultimately had more interest, though, in Rosemary's Baby, which was the plan all along. The film was adapted very closely to the novel. So let's talk about the cast very quickly. Mia Farrow plays Rosemary Woodhouse. She's the star of the film. I would say super cute for at least, you know, (laughs) the early part of the movie. (laughs) Polanski wanted to cast either Tuesday Weld or his wife, Sharon Tate. Wow. Maybe two of the (laughs) all-time babes. list. Yeah. He was picturing a more full-figured girl-next-door type, which is closer to the description of Rosemary in the novel. However, Evans wanted Pharaoh because of her popularity on the TV show Peyton Place and also her unexpected marriage to Frank Sinatra at the time. I'll say this, Mia Farrow, 1968, girl could rock a a sundress. She has a very waif-like appearance, sort of a haunted quality. That's true. And over the course of the film will transform even more. And I think it's hard to imagine somebody like Tuesday Weld or Sharon Tate in this part. Not that they couldn't necessarily play a woman in peril, but there's something about Mia Farrow that is very childlike, which is what they're going for with the hair, which which she sometimes has like pigtails. Almost ghostly as well. She wears like those very childlike clothes. Right. Because that sort of ties in with what we were saying about her husband, Guy. Like he's in control. He's like the adult and she doesn't really have a say in anything. Yeah, yeah. During the filming, Sinatra would serve... Divorce papers to Pharaoh. Oh, wow. <laughs> which sort of disrupted everything because he didn't want her to be in this movie. Maybe some real emotion. Yeah, he very much into... is like Guy in the <laughs> movie. He like wanted to be in control. He was making a movie called The Detective, which he wanted Mia Farrow to be in. It ended up being Lee Remick instead. It really took some convincing by Polanski and Evans to like have her not leave the movie. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> she was very upset. I think on the special features on the Criterion Blu-ray, she was talking about spending a lot of time with Roman Plansky and Sharon Tate like at their house as she sort of tried to like recover from this. There you have it. Art imitating life a little bit. She ended up not getting nominated for an Academy Award. It's sort of a a notorious Oscar snub. Yeah, she is. She's great in it. I think Cassavetes as Guy is, is great in this. But yeah, this unraveling and when she just starts to like kind of She's putting these pieces together and coming off as almost like delirious. Yeah, it's a great performance. So that brings us to John Cassavetes as Guy Woodhouse, her husband. I think Cassavetes is probably more known now as a director, but he did act in his own films and others. Yeah, he's he's perfect for the role. I think he nails this because he has like this almost charming demeanor, but pulls some pretty sleazy not so good moves and then him like like dealing with this situation and the shame that he's feeling and how you can kind of see that in his body language just uh, again another great performance they originally wanted robert redford they couldn't get him jack nicholson met with polanski polanski thought he looked too sinister already agree they would team up later for chinatown cassavetes and polanski 
did not really get along during filming. <laughs> Completely different approaches to making movies. Well, Cassavetes, I feel like, is kind of legendary for being kind of a dick. Yeah, I think he was very set in like his ways uh, like, of how he it, wanted things to be. Yeah, and like an intense filmmaker. Ruth Gordon and Sidney Blackmer as Minnie and Roman Castavet. Ruth Gordon won the Academy Award for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for this movie. Her performance is actually perfect because once you realize what's happening, you understand her whole way of being. Her line delivery and the characterization of Minnie Cassavet is basically like Gordon steamrolling these line readings, undermining any and all of Rosemary's misgivings. Just like before you even yeah, yeah. have a chance to second I'm guess just or lay think this of something. On. Yeah. She just keeps talking and says something else. And it's all very designed to keep Rosemary off balance and just not ever sure of like what's going on or what to say. Here, have some tea. <laughs> just drink the tea. Asking how much a chair is yeah. in their house and stuff. <laughs> Okay, so let's get into it. 1965, Guy and Rosemary Woodhouse rent a recently vacated apartment in the Bramford. Seems crazy that he's a semi-successful actor. She doesn't work, obviously. (laughs) This apartment seems insane. It's very big, but I think you're supposed to get the impression from like that... That guy that's showing the, the house. like hole in the yeah. floor in the oh, hallway yeah. and stuff. It's supposed to be like kind of run down a little bit. It's all old people that live in the building. Yeah, it's a large gothic building in New York City. The previous tenant, an elderly woman, fell into a coma and died. They used the exterior of the Dakota, which was also used in Vanilla Sky. Oh yeah. They don't allow you to film inside the Dakota, so this was, I think, a set. Okay. Pretty sure. Makes sense. It's also where John Lennon lived and then was murdered. Sad. As they're being shown this apartment, there's already some red flags. If you pay attention, there's some suspicious things. The first thing is Rosemary looks down at the desk and there's like a piece of paper that the previous tenant was writing something. And it's the only part you can see it says, can no longer associate myself. Oh, yeah. Could mean a lot of things. There's the weird herb garden. That's right. And then the final thing is there's one more closet that the landlord guy or whoever this is wants to show them, but it's blocked by this giant piece of furniture. Yeah, and this is that move that they do in movies where they just kind of throw in something that's like, it doesn't quite make sense. Okay, this has been moved, it's blocking something, but also the fact that this woman was like elderly. Like, how was she moving this thing? Rosemary's sort of got this carefree attitude childlike appearance and demeanor she's very excited to try to get this apartment she convinces guy that this is the place he's just like well we can't afford it but whatever and her drive in this movie for at least the opening portion is this desire for very traditional things the standard traditional american dream she wants to have the nice house they're talking about having children She sees a very bright future. Oh, yeah. Their friend Hutch, though, gives them a little bit of a warning about the Bramford's dark past involving witchcraft and murder. (laughs) What a thing to leap to. I was tempted to write the management that you were drug addicts and litter bugs. Instead, I decided to lie and tell them you were wonderful, Terrence. Ah, you're great, Hutch. Wish I could talk you out of it, though. (laughs) He's pulling your leg, Rohani. Geez, I'm not. 
Now that looks great. That is. Are you good. aware that the Bramford had rather an unpleasant reputation around the turn of the century? It's where the Trench sisters conducted their little dietary experiments. And Keith Kennedy held his parties. Adrian McCardo lived there too. So did Pearl A. Oh, the Trench sisters. Got it. The Trench sisters were two proper Victorian ladies. They cooked and ate several young children, including a niece. Oh, lovely. Adrian McCarto practiced witchcraft. He made quite a splash in the 90s by announcing that he'd conjured up the living devil. Apparently, people believed him, so they attacked and nearly killed him in the lobby of the Bramford. You're joking. Later, the Keith Kennedy business began, and by the 20s, the house was half empty. I, I knew about Keith Kennedy. I didn't know that Marcato lived there. And those sisters. World War II filled the house up again. Terrific. <laughs> the house? The lamb. <laughs> they called it Black Bramford. But hot. Awful things happen in every apartment house. Now, this house has a high incident on pleasant happenings. In 59, a dead infant was found wrapped in newspaper in the basement. Mmm, you really roused my appetite. Have some more wine. If you were to make the case that Rosemary is being paranoid and that this is all in her head, you could say that this is the moment that the seed, a seed is planted yeah. here. There's various people associated with witchcraft, some trench sisters, I think is their name. They Oh yeah. eat children or something. A lot of crazy <laughs> shit. Right. But the Woodhouses disregard Hutch's warnings and move in anyway. Uh, that's nice, Hutch. Come on. And Rosemary is off on her seemingly endless quest to make a home out of this place. She's always in the process of doing things. Oh yeah. I mean, this apartment is awesome. Yeah. It's huge. They're able to paint it. They're able it to make nice. changes yeah. to it. I enjoy like when they move in. It's just bringing a single lamp <laughs> and setting it up and having dinner under it, and then promptly decide that they're gonna make love. <laughs> People in old movies always talking about making love. That's right. A thing <laughs> of the past. Nobody makes love anymore. Oh no! After the internet happened. <laughs> Now people are just opening a video that starts with, like, a gaping butthole. <laughs> Love is dead. <laughs> really? That's the new Time Magazine cover? Rosemary meets Terry Ginofrio, a recovering drug addict who has been taken in by the Woodhouse's elderly neighbors, the Castavets, Minnie, and Roman. They're down in the basement of this building doing laundry together. Terry shows Rosemary this pendant necklace... Given to like, her by the cast of Vets. Man, the smell of this thing, pretty repulsive. Strong, unpleasant odor inside of this pendant. Yeah, that's some good luck charm. Terry is essentially like a surrogate daughter or even granddaughter for the cast of Vets who have no children of their own. But I think it's important to pay attention to what Terry's saying about her lifestyle and why things all fall into place later. She uh, needed to be saved. There's certain implications about her lifestyle, potentially, about what she might have been doing. But Terry's singing their praises. And if, so this is Rosemary's first impression of the cast of S is, is what Terry These is saying. sweet old people. Terry's played by a, a, a woman named Angela Dorian, a.k.a. Victoria Vitra, which is her real name. Okay. That's sort of the joke. Yeah. Rosemary says, you look like the actress Victoria Vitri. <laughs> and she is Victoria Vitri, right. but that's not the name she used, which is weird. In real life, <laughs> okay, she was a Playboy Playmate I in believe the 60s. It. She looks good. 
And then in 2010, she was arrested for attempted murder. What? <laughs> the charge was reduced, and she ended up spending like nine years in prison. Holy shit. <laughs> she was just like just released, released like, like a, a year, year ago? or two ago. Yeah. <laughs> I saw like a picture of her mugshot. She doesn't look like that anymore. No. She looks wild. <laughs> what at things uh, went off the rails, I guess. Yeah, I think the person that she shot was like her husband or longtime partner or now something, how does something? that go from murder to a lesser charge we didn't die oh okay I it was see. attempted murder i see <laughs> anyway <laughs> what did people take a vote and decide that <laughs> yeah they didn't really like him i think it's maybe one of the first nights once they're actually like set up with a bed and staying in there where rosemary overhears some arguing and then some strange music and chanting coming from the apartment next door it's sort of hard to like put into words what the situation is, but they share like a wall with the neighboring apartment, I which it, I think used to be all one apartment. Is that what the idea is? I really don't know. I, in fact, at, at parts I was thinking like the sound was coming from like upstairs, but then I did realize that it is just adjacent. Yeah, I think what they're saying is it's sort of like an added wall that's not really 100% a wall, like soundproof. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it but they can easily over it doesn't have like that thick drywall from like the old buildings in between yeah something like that i I don't really know okay pretty soon after that after her meeting with terry in the basement rosemary and guy are outside and there's a crowd of people around with some police and terry has thrown herself from the seventh floor in an apparent suicide Yeah, so a short appearance for that actress. Everyone's shocked by this. It's sort of a bloody mess. Some people are shocked, I would say. Actually, a lot of people are kind of nonchalant about it. (laughs) They weren't that broke up. No, no. Well, I think the. Certainly not the cast of us. The idea. Roman just like, I knew it. I think the idea here is that almost no one knew who she was. Right. And so they're sort of like, who even is this? Like, where did she come from? She just jumped out of this apartment. Yeah, yeah. Like, the other tenants are acting like they don't know who she is. And when Guy mentions that they know her, the cops are, like, all of a sudden perking up. Oh, who is she? Who is she? So Rosemary tells the police that she's sitting with the Castavets, and then the first appearance of them out of the darkness approaching on the sidewalk, they're dressed in these garish, bright, almost cartoonish colors. Roman is wearing, like, a pink pinstripe suit. A lot of reddish colors, though. Minnie has that, like, crazy hat. And they're feigning surprise, I guess, at least many is, and they're sort of confirming that the handwriting on the suicide note is hers. <laughs> Roman has her handwriting memorized. It seems like That's they're her, doing right. just enough to convince that they're surprised by this, which leads people to speculate on what actually happened with Terry. If they killed Terry, and this is supposed to just look like a suicide, or if Terry got hit to the plan... And killed herself. I think based on Rosemary's dreaming and mixing in the overlapping dialogue that she's overhearing later after this scene, I think it's clear that it is a suicide. I think so. And that Minnie is sort of pissed at Roman for trying to explain it to Terry what was going to happen too early. Well, plus they do weave in what, what the coven does to people to kill them. And this is not really... One their style yeah, yeah right i think the significance of terry in the story is that she was their first attempt right 
at doing this thing that they're going to do. Yeah, and then after and this one, go awry. They were like, "We got to try a different angle." Yeah, I think what I was what I meant was earlier when I referenced like the implications of Terry's lifestyle. I think they thought it would make sense to find sort of a damaged. Yeah. broken woman and we'll pick her up her, off the streets we'll and take her in be parents to her roman's like i'm your dad now she's the ideal candidate for this process and then it, it turns out she's like too unstable and it just doesn't work and so yeah. they go with almost well, like the complete opposite she's already got a lot of demons so it's like <laughs> too much well, i think that's what they were thinking like oh she's used to this <laughs> so they go the polar opposite with rosemary who's like this very bright and bubbly clean as a whistle straight and narrow that's right idyllic husband and wife yeah rosemary has these dreams where she mixes what the characters in her dreams are saying with the overlapping dialogue of mini cast of it next door you don't know what they're talking about but once you put the pieces together like I said, it seems that she's blaming Roman for Terry killing herself because they didn't need to tell her so early. We don't know tell her what yet. But shortly after Terry's death is when the intrusions start. Constantly, every day, Minnie seemingly barging in, arriving at Rosemary's door, talking her ear off, sort of inserting herself into Rosemary's world and oh, life. Yeah. Butting in, nosy. Fine. May I come in a minute? Yes, of course. Please do. I just come over to thank you for saying those nice things to us the other night. Oh, no, please. Poor Terry. We thought maybe we failed her some way. Though her note made it crystal clear we hadn't. She'll never know how helpful it was in such a shock moment. So I do thank you. Roman does, too. Roman's my hubby. You're welcome. I'm glad I could help. Yeah. Well, she was cremated yesterday. Now we better forget and go on. It won't be easy with army children of our own, you have any? No, we don't. Well, there you go. Oh, that's a nice. Look how you put the table on. Isn't that interesting? I saw it in a magazine. Oh, my nice picture. That's nice. Where is that? That's the TV room? Uh, well, only temporarily. It's going to be a nursery. Oh, you're pregnant? No, not yet. I hope to be as soon as we're settled. Wonderful. Well, you're young and healthy. You have lots of children. We plan to have three. I didn't see what you did to this apartment. The woman I had it before was a dear friend of mine. I know. Terry told me. Oh, did she? You two had some long talks together in the laundry room. Only one. Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, it looks so much brighter. Why do you pick a chair like that? Uh, oh, um, I'm not sure, really. I think about $200. What does your hubby do? He's an actor. I knew it. I said it to Roman yesterday. He's so good looking. What movies was he in? No movies. He was in two plays called Luther and Nobody Loves an Albatross and a lot of television and radio. Listen, Rosemary. I got a two-inch thick solo in steak. Sit and defrost him right this minute. When you and Guy come over and have supper with us tonight, what do you say? Oh, no, we couldn't. Why not? No, really, that's very kind of you. This would be a real help to us. <laughs> First night we'll be alone since. Are you sure it wouldn't be too much trouble oh, for you? Oh, honey, if it was trouble, I wouldn't ask you. All right, you go ahead and count on us. I'll have to check with Guy, though. Listen, you tell him I won't take no for an answer. Oh, here's your mail. 
Rosemary inadvertently spilling a lot of information because why would she be suspicious of this old woman? You know, she's saying we don't have any kids, but we want to have kids. Right. Talking about what does Guy do? What are his interests? Setting down markers for them later to find a way in. A lot of mental notes being taken here. Minnie invites Rosemary and Guy over for dinner. Guy is yeah. the one who's very reluctant and doesn't really want to do it. The whole sequence when they go, I was like, this is like a who's afraid of Virginia Woolf scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Just getting drunk with an older couple. Roman Castavet, Minnie's husband, immediately buttering Guy's bread about his acting. Just oh yeah, throwing out very generic things that Guy can sort of fill in the blanks for That's him. Right. So he doesn't yeah. even have to have specific information. Oh, you'll, you'll definitely make it. As long as you get your break, of course. you got to get the right breaks. He knows that he was in the play Luther, Luther because Rosemary told Minnie. And so then he just says, oh, that thing you did. I can't remember exactly, but you did a gesture. And then, you know. Oh, yeah. Guy fills in the blank. And I think like later when you actually see Guy rehearsing on his own when he gets this big part later i think the idea is like he's not good right (laughs) (laughs) this is where roman spots an inn it's a way in to guy's life he sees what guy really wants and so when the women are in the kitchen washing dishes there's this unseen unheard discussion between guy and roman while they're smoking cigars in the other room this is what i think can make great movies at times is is these scenes that happen that you don't see but you can fully picture the mystery is there still and that it makes it creepy too because this is a dark conversation potentially yeah i think it starts subtle know. and it builds to it and it obviously bleeds into the next night yeah i don't know if they've like given the full pitch yet of what's going to happen but they've got guy on the hook Either way, there has to be a change in demeanor somewhat to ro- what Roman's saying, you know? Yeah. If you pay attention when Minnie and Rosemary come back into the room, Guy does have, like, this expression of anxiety. Like, he stands up kind of, like, abruptly. like Oh, right yeah, away, right. Like, as if they're caught doing something. The strangeness and disconnect is confirmed later after the dinner when Guy says he plans to return to hear more of Roman's stories the next night. This yeah surprises rosemary because it contradicts his earlier attitude about getting involved with an old couple and they're actually completely blowing off plans with their friends and it sort of comes out of nowhere and this is very relatable too like these minor betrayals this could be between you and your friends you and a family member you and your wife girlfriend boyfriend husband whatever where you think that you're very much on the same page right. and you think you know what's going on. You maybe even make jokes about this thing. And then out of nowhere, they do the opposite of what they've been saying. And you're kind of just like, wait, what? That happens all the time to everybody where you're sort of caught off guard by somebody who's not exactly in line with you. It's like, well, this is wh- what do you mean you're hanging out with Tom? Oh, I know. We make fun yeah. of Tom all the time. <laughs> you're Tom. hanging out with Tom yeah. now without me? Like, what's, what the fuck? <laughs> like that kind of stuff. And their feelings on the Cassavetes have changed, or at least guys yeah. have. Rosemary seems like she's starting to turn to annoyance. Yeah, she was like maybe a little bit more open-minded about being nice, and now is sort of like weirded Enough. out by the whole thing. I don't really want to hang out with old people. She okay? points out how like 
they very clearly had pictures hung up in frames on their wall and they were missing. Like she could see the outlines of where they would go. Yeah. And she was like pointing that out. And then guys, of course, like, what oh, I didn't notice. Yeah. Minnie and this other woman, Laura Louise, show up unannounced. And this is what I meant. And just like constantly intruding into Rosemary's personal space. Yeah, I know. It is a bit much. And what could possibly be interesting about these two? How do you keep these conversations going? It's just you would want these people out of your house. And that feeling of invasive, intrusive, it does continue to go on. Rosemary does continue to like get over this completely, yet they just keep showing up. Yeah, she's very much of the mindset of, well, we're like a young couple in our early 20s. Yeah, we're just here to party. I don't want to get like sucked into having to be friends with these old people right. who are going to just you know be boring and constantly hanging on to us talk to us about you know how much travel they've done but like this scene in particular and many throughout is sort of this dark humor although at this point you wouldn't even necessarily have to say dark this is just sort of like a comedic interlude where they're like pulling out their knitting as soon as they like (laughs) get into her apartment she's like i knew it and this very like pushy abrasive personality that's kind of funny to watch the weird moment, though, is that Minnie gives Terry's pendant to Rosemary as a good luck charm containing something called Tannis Root, which is what smells. Yeah, and it is... I don't know what you're supposed to think Rosemary's reaction to this is. How could you think this is anything but weird that they would give this to you? you yeah, She you, knew it was Terry's. Yeah, you saw it on her dead body right. with the blood and everything. Did the Cassavettes, like... <laughs> Have to recover this from her? I don't know, I guess. Yeah. Tannis Root, by the way, which comes up throughout the movie, is made up. It's not a real thing. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I don't want it to be real. It seems like it doesn't smell very good. The way that the cast of Etz, especially Minnie, and then eventually Guy, too, treat Rosemary, even in this early stage before her pregnancy, is this very passive-aggressive way. It's it's pushy without being like loud and mean. It's more just like nudging her in a way that's not yeah. exactly normal or natural, but well, she's, she, what can she say? It's, she's definitely rife for being steamrolled. Yeah. Guy's fortunes change. As you pointed out, talking about them getting this apartment, he was sort of this struggling actor who had done like a couple of plays and commercials. Couple plays. Yeah, although, you know, Rosemary Insists that he does a lot of television and radio. He ends up landing an important role in a play after the original actor cast inexplicably goes blind. That's right. And so now his career is on track and he's like, let's have a baby. And there's this yeah. sudden urgency to getting knocked up, Hell which is something part, she though. wants. Oh, right. Yeah. So it feels like he's giving her something that she wants to do. Yeah. But when you look back at the timeline, it's very clearly like he's been shown something, this power of what they can do. And so now the choice has been made. That's right. Or it seems like he needs to cash in on his end of the deal. Yeah. Things turn pretty dark fast at this point. (laughs) I'd say so, yeah. Actually, it's almost unexpectedly early that I would say that you're really finding out about Guy and his involvement in all of this yeah they don't really save that reveal you kind of you kind of know right away yeah i think though 
at this point in time, before so many other things existed, and before anyone had like a working knowledge of what Rosemary's Baby was or what it was about, I do think that there would be a significant part of the audience that would still buy into this potentially being a dream. Okay, sure. I, I, it, I do. I, I don't think this stuff was in concrete for those people because they didn't really know what they were seeing. This right. is like their first time seeing it. And it is such a, a weird sequence that it's like, why? Because she very, why? part of it is very definitely a dream, Absolutely. obviously. yeah. So, yeah, it is very jarring probably I do always just feel like that part then. of it, feel the, the part where he's in it saying she's awake, <laughs> that part feels so real and undreamlike. Yeah. On the night they plan to conceive, Minnie brings them individual cups of chocolate mousse, which she refers to as mouse. Guy opens the door, like, the shot of Rosemary just being like, no, please do not let her in. Yeah, not realizing that this is all, like, a performance for her. That this has already been decided of of what's going on. Because even the detail from the book of, like, her topping having that little extra thing on it to distinguish which is which. Guy chastises Rosemary for complaining that hers has a chalky undertaste. She eats only a small portion before secretly discarding the rest. And this is more of that passive aggressive. Oh, I guess everything's got to be a problem. And then that sort of guilts her into having a few more bites before she dumps it into her napkin. Which is actually kind of gross. And it seems like it would probably ruin this cloth. After Rosemary stumbles around and then passes out, clearly drugged, Guy puts her on the bed. Starts like taking her clothes off. Yeah, it morphs into this dream world where she's sort of in and out of consciousness. She's rocking back and forth between reality and this vision. It it goes completely silent, and she's on a boat. Hutch is there, and he's left on shore, and she's questioning Guy about it. Or I think that's actually supposed to be JFK. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's what that's supposed to be. That guy's like Catholics only. Yeah, right, right. Because I think the woman later is supposed to be rosemary kennedy maybe okay or something i, I don't know i Not know there's like a kennedy tied in with this because it's right. like very catholic stuff the strange music starts she's suddenly like walking around nude and then goes down below deck on the boat yeah and then she's put on this bed and there's so all like we need to tie your legs down spectators who are also nude but they're like all very old <laughs> Yeah, and this is kind of something that has carried on throughout. Anytime we get into these covens or demon worshippers, we always end up with a bunch of naked old people. You know what I mean? Like whether it's because there's Lords nothing of, more horrifying. Right, Lords of Salem, Hereditary, whatever it is, we always end up with these like just naked old people. I think that can probably be tied into like the pagan rituals that yeah. a lot of this ideology comes from. I would imagine. Yeah. I think I would be like, uh, not for me on that one. Once we got to the part where all the old people start getting naked, I'd be like, I I don't think I can subscribe to this. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that a lot of Rosemary's nudity is a body double. I think so, too. I think. But not all of it, though. Okay. Well, certainly not all of it, because the part where she like takes her top off where they're going to make love. I mean, it's definitely her. Yeah. And then I think there's a part where she's like laying topless here. Where her face is in the screen, too. I don't know. On the special features, she talked about the body double doing the scene where she's tied down. And the guy's okay. like painting her. Oh, okay. I, I guess I thought that would have had to have been her. but The spectators are chanting. They paint her nude body. 
the cast of it's are there front and center guy is there also nude a demonic beastly presence rapes her as the nude tenants of the bramford watch we note the eyes of the demon which we'll come back into it later this is evidently supposed to be satan yeah and it's just sort of like you know listen you have your slasher movies you have your other series of scary movies but it's not often that you have somebody just fornicating with the devil there's the iconic moment here where she's like this is no dream this is really happening oh yeah which seems like that would stick with you the next morning if you yell that out like you're gonna remember that well yeah (laughs) it's always unfortunate though so many of polanski's movies do have like a rape i know there's a lot of rape elements right (laughs) which is very unfortunate and it sort of makes this movie tough to to think about in that context. But well, yeah, and even the next morning with Guy is oh, yeah. really weird and bizarre. And it, I guess it does go back to the whole thing of him owning her. In a way, it's at least as dark as the actual event itself because he's supposed to be... Oh, he's so nonchalant about her husband. Too. Yeah. In the morning, Rosemary is covered in scratches... And Guy admits to having sex with her unconscious body since he did not want to miss baby night. Oh, gosh. And it's ultra disturbing on so many levels because, as you said, the casualness of it. As oh, if it's just nothing. What time did I go to sleep? You didn't go to sleep. You passed out. Uh, from now on, you get cocktails or wine, not cocktails and wine. Huh? The dreams I had. Don't yell. I already filed him down. <laughs> I didn't want to miss baby night. You. And a couple of my nails were out? ragged. And, and it was kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way. I dreamed someone was raping me. I didn't know someone inhuman. Thanks a lot. What's the matter? Nothing. I didn't want to miss the night. We could have done it this morning or tonight. Last night wasn't the only split second. Oh, I was a little bit loaded myself, you know. And this speaks to what I think the movie is ultimately a commentary on, which is the trapped life of a woman. Yeah. If In this time period, it seems crazy to think, because for some of us who are older, I guess, the 60s, we weren't alive for the 60s, <laughs> but the 60s don't seem that ancient yeah that's right you and i are like in our 60s (laughs) well our you know there are plenty of people who were alive in the 60s who are still alive we're not talking about something from like 200 years ago and i think even as recently as back then it's like your husband beats you up a lot of the times you're trapped your husband cheats on you your husband is mean to you your husband does this or that or even if you want to like ignore the husband part of it and just be like you're unhappy and you want a different life that's even more out of the question because at least if your husband beats you up you might get sympathy yeah you're not even gonna get sympathy if you think that you're gonna get a divorce just because you're unhappy and so these women that didn't have jobs they didn't necessarily go to college they didn't a lot of them maybe didn't even finish high school they become housewives and they're essentially property yeah, and that's how and we're it. at a change. I think oh, yeah. divorces are going to explode here over the next oh, few years, but right. which is covered in things like Mad Men. Yeah, but yeah. This is sort of that 
time period just before like the big yeah, second and, wave feminism and that's like you said it, it's part of the movie it's the walls closing in it's that feeling trapped i mean it, rosemary does not have a lot of options it doesn't feel like i would say that if you did a survey of american men in 1965 or whenever this is supposed to be of the question of is it possible for a husband to rape a wife i would say that probably like a a substantial number would say no which seems insane but i think that was the prevailing yeah and i mean that's also something that i feel like is also addressed on mad men rosemary very quickly seems to notice things are off Guy doesn't want to look at her. Guy is acting very strange, guilty, sheepish. Oh, yeah. Again, I said about the performance earlier. I think he is, like, great. It feels so believable to me. Yeah, well, it's, like, it's just subtle enough right? where you could not even notice it unless you're looking for it. So it it actually rewards, like, second or third viewings. Yeah. Because if it was too over the top, that would be, like, too much of a giveaway and take away a lot of the fun of it. No, I I do feel like this is a guy that's doing a pretty good job of acting normal, but you can just tell and and see and feel the shame and the guilt that he's going through. In a way, it's guy's best performance. It's better than anything he's doing in any of those plays. Well, yeah, pretending come on. to be a normal loving husband. Yeah, we know that he wasn't very good in Luther <laughs> with that hand gesture. Rosemary goes to see Doctor Hill, played by a young Charles Grodin, in his first film role how about that turns out that rosemary's pregnant and this seems to push the dark thoughts away for the time being because she's very excited about being pregnant and she tells guy when he gets home and guy immediately wants to tell minnie and roman which is so (laughs) weird yeah right (laughs) you're not really even supposed to tell anyone except very close family right at the beginning until you get to a certain time He wants to tell these weird old people. The Cassavettes immediately want Rosemary to forget about her own doctor, Dr. Hill, and go see Dr. Abraham Saperstein, a prominent obstetrician. John Ralphio's dad. Who also happens to be their close personal friend. That first night, I believe, after they tell the Cassavettes, why does Rosemary pull the pendant back out, which she had not been wearing, and then put it on? Yeah, it's unclear to me. I I don't know why she would. I guess my best thought was she. It's just a burst of motherly superstition. Yeah, right. Like I guess the idea is maybe I need this good luck charm. Yeah, she's still so far away from being suspicious of anything. Really. Oh yeah, right. As far as she knows, she's like it didn't she just smell. had a very weird dream. Yeah, yeah. She's like it didn't smell that bad. It is strange though. I'm assuming they fucked like other times in that time period, but. If she thought that she got pregnant from him having sex with her when she was unconscious, like that would be yeah. a very bizarre memory to associate with the birth of your child. Yeah, it feels like it could actually lead to some issues and, and maybe future therapy sessions. She goes and sees Saperstein. Saperstein says, please don't read books. Don't listen to your friends either. Don't take any pills. He prescribes a daily drink prepared by Minnie from her herbarium it all seems pretty gross all these shakes and everything that (laughs) what's very suspicious right off the bat what kind of doctor is gonna say don't take modern medicine yeah stay away from modern medicine don't read books and don't talk to your friends about it basically and it plays in with that controlling and being cut off you can't 
reach out for outside help. Right. You are under our control and we will handle it. <laughs> Don't you worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Rosemary returns home after having gotten a haircut from Vidal Sassoon. So now she has, her hair was already pretty short. Now she has like basically a precursor to like a pixie cut, almost like a boy's cut, very short. Mm-hmm. There are Noticeable a lot of decline in her look. <laughs> a lot of interpretations about this. Yeah. The rejection of her traditional femininity. A lot of people see this as the turning point where she is now rejecting that childlike version of herself that was very naive and this is when she starts to slowly uncover what's going on Uh and and take a stand i don't necessarily think that it exactly lines up with that because it still seems to take a little while for her because you don't really see it but i do feel like there's a lot of implications of the decline of her relationship with guy they sort of indicate that there's been like he's constantly it seems like he's apologizing for being like a dick like he's very wrapped up in his career now i think is the idea especially now that she's pregnant and she maybe could use him more but i think the simplest interpretation of the haircut is that it is a desperate attempt to have control over something yeah okay the movie swallow that came out this year which was uh Mm. bennett like swallowing all those objects and then like tax and shit very hard to watch but like <laughs> kind of a hard trailer to watch the whole idea behind that kind of mental illness is searching for control and she's like a very kept woman just like rosemary mm-hmm. there's a, actually yep. a lot of similarities there and so rosemary doesn't resort to like swallowing tax but on a spur of the moment decision she just gets this haircut which her husband hates <laughs> yeah and is adamant against and i think in real life Frank Sinatra was also very adamantly against. It's strange how many parallels there are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I would say even the characters in this movie, no one is particularly uh, friendly about her haircut, it seems like. During her first trimester, Rosemary suffers intense abdominal pains and actually starts to lose weight. Well, that is the one thing. I I am like, she's continuing to go along with this stuff for like way too long, it seems. I feel like she'd be like, all right, I'm not going to take these shakes anymore. I I don't want to see this doctor. This seems horrible. Yeah, I think this is a product of the times where sex education was very minimal. She's just like, this is just how it is. She doesn't really know anything about being pregnant. And when she tries to learn, she gets scolded by (laughs) Saperstein. Yeah, what are you doing? Where did you hear about ectopic pregnancies? Did you read a book? (laughs) How dare you? Right. That kind of stuff. Saperstein attributes her pain to temporarily stiff pelvic joints. doesn't really seem to make sense, though. Her pelvis is, like, down here. The pain seems to be up here. I don't know. People listening can't see where I'm pointing, but... (laughs) It was all very horrifying, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Her appearance continues to change. She becomes gaunt and pale, dark circles under her eyes. She looks very ghostly and, and... De- yeah, demented almost. It's, it's kind of crazy. Leads up to the party scene that they have, right? Well, first Hutch visits. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah. is alarmed by her appearance. <laughs> you look like shit. And during this visit, Roman conveniently interrupts and gets himself invited inside. Yeah. Essentially which, overseeing the situation to right. to make sure yeah, that nothing's going and on. And it is this constant watching you feel like it that that's going on like they always have 
some tabs on what she's up to. Because Hutch is very, well, he's con- concerned for his friend, but he's very questioning of all of these answers. Like, what is this Tannis route? Why are you losing weight? Yeah, what the fuck all is going stuff. on? There's a lot of weird elements at play here. And he's not as quick to just accept the answers. Because they're not great. Roman leaves, but then suddenly Guy returns home midday, still wearing his makeup from whatever acting job he's on, which is highly unusual and suspicious. And then when Hutch goes to leave, a glove of his is missing. Oh, no. There's a lot of moments in this movie where just like the camera work is like pretty cool. I do feel like this is one of those moments, though, the way they shoot this by the closet, because... I don't know. They do this kind of, he he puts the jacket on, can't find his glove. And then they do this kind of slow pan back to the closet. And it's just dark. And the whole thing is, I don't know. It, it's weird, but it, it's cool. It has this kind of artistic look to it. Yeah, I think Rosemary's Baby is considered like the the godfather of art house horror. I think nowadays people like to refer to it as like elevated horror, which is yeah. sort of like a bullshit term because who gets to decide what's elevated and not? But yeah, no. I mean, there's there is some really cool like camera work throughout it that's kind of like yeah, yeah, w- way more than you would expect to see in in any classic horror movie. Hutch calls later and makes a plan to meet Rosemary the next morning to discuss some urgent matter that he won't talk about over the phone. She's still very oblivious to the level with which this is all swirling around her. So she just tells Guy, like, everything, every detail. And then all of a sudden, he needs to go out conveniently. Oh, right. He's like, yeah. oh, I got to run out. Rosemary's pains are worsening. They're sort of almost leaving her. It's, like, too weak to do anything. But yeah. she goes out to meet Hutch. Hutch never shows. Everything's feeling, like, more and more heightened. Yeah. When she calls to find out what's going on, it, she learns that Hutch has fallen into a mysterious coma, the cause of which is unknown. And You're then like, she's, well, he's old, so, you know, it happens. She's wandering around the city dazed, and then she's, like, basically retrieved by Minnie and brought home. Yeah, which Minnie, of course, being like, oh, what a coincidence yeah. running into you here. New Year's comes, and it's 1966, which... At the New Year's party at the Kasovets, Roman refers to as the year one, and <laughs> nobody questions that, yeah. <laughs> so that's weird. <laughs> of course, the due date of the baby is June of 1966. Right, right. Six, six, six. Oh, boy. <laughs> but yeah, this is the party where now we see a glimpse of their old life, right? Whose old life? The... No, this is the New Year's party. Okay. I think her party... Is a month or so after that. Okay. So this I is just... I think with... it's supposed to be like February. Okay, right. The party at the Cassavetes has like Saperstein there. Oh, yes. Our, Laura our... Louise. People that will, you know, eventually whole... all be tied yeah. in with the deal. I, I just like to refer to them as the crew. <laughs> Rosemary's party, she makes the joke, you have to be under 60 to get in. That's right. She doesn't want any of these old people there. And you can tell that Guy is uncomfortable with the idea, but he's not really sure how to handle the situation. Minnie then tries to horn in, and Rosemary is just like adamant nope. to keep her out of it. This is the first time Rosemary dumps the daily drink, which is this white smoothie with green shit in it. I don't really know how to explain it. I she don't just know. dumps Gross. that down the drain. They have this party the Woodhouses do at their apartment. 
There was always like a rumor that Sharon Tate was in the background somewhere in this party. I never have seen her though, and I don't Certainly know that not. that's true. If so, not prominently featured. Rosemary's friends are concerned, and they're urging her to go back to Doctor Hill. Yeah, they're they're kind of. It's a flashback to like kind of what their normal lives would have been, but also the friends are just kind of like, "What are you doing with this?" Other doctor. Yeah, they're like, like, well, when did the pain start? And she's like, November. And they're like, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's completely insane. Guy is buzzing around. He's like completely He's like, unnerved. Listen, you bitches, stop telling Rosemary what to do. He's trying to get in there and they're like blocking him out. So with her friend's advice buzzing in her ears and the pain now unbearable, Rosemary insists she must get a second opinion from Dr. Hill. Guy explodes in anger. He's like, it's going to cost too much. He's saying they're going to have to pay Hill and Saperstein. And then when he's getting desperate, he goes so far as to suggest Saperstein might be offended, as if that matters. <laughs> and Rosemary's like, what do you mean? Like, what about me? Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to be your wife who's carrying your child, and I'm literally in pain every day, and you're, like, moving mountains to make sure I don't see another doctor. But as they argue, the pains in her stomach magically stop all at once. And Rosemary feels the baby move inside of her for the first time. And her reaction is equally as bizarre as anything else because she keeps saying it's alive and it's very reminiscent of Frankenstein. <laughs> right. And then she tells Guy, it won't bite you. But his reaction when he puts his hand on her stomach and feels the movement is to like pull away and yeah, like, like horror. shudders. I-, I haven't drunk it for the last three days. I've thrown it away. You what? I've made my own drink. Is that what those bitches were giving you in there? Is that their hint for today? They're my friends. Don't They're call a bunch of not very bright bitches who ought to mind their own goddamn bitch. All they said was get a second opinion. Rosemary, you got the best doctor in New York. You know who Dr. Hill is? He's a Charlie nobody. That's who he is. I'm tired of hearing how great Dr. Saperstein is. <laughs> well, we'll have to pay Saperstein. We'll have to pay Hill. Well, it's out of the question. Uh-uh. uh-uh. No, I'm... I'm not changing. I just want to go to Dr. Hill and get a second opinion. I won't let you do it, Rome. I mean, because it's uh, it's not fair to Saperstein. Not fair to... What are you talking about? What about what's fair to me? Look, if you want a second opinion, you tell Saperstein and, and, and let him decide. No, I, I want Dr. Hill. <laughs> At least if have that much courtesy to tell me how you I'll... feel. Ro? Rosemary? What is it? Stop. What? Pain, stop. 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 What was in that drink you made? Um, eggs, milk, sugar, sugar. What else? No, Rosemary, for Christ's sakes, what else was in that drink? It's alive. Guy, it's moving. It's alive. It's all right. Feel. Oh, yeah, I felt it. Don't be scared. It won't bite you. Oh, it's wonderful. It's really... I feel it kicking. It's alive. It's moving. But she's, again, so distracted by her own happiness. Right. 
this relief at not feeling the pain anymore and then also feeling the baby move is a signal that everything is going fine you think the the frankenstein reference is kind of like intentional because it's a monster that she's carrying yeah there's an improvement to her appearance and disposition at this point it's almost as if this sudden change with the pregnancy has solved everything again several times throughout this movie it's like she's reset and it temporarily stops her from pursuing the knowledge any further guy is acting like a dick guy may have raped her or something else horrible happened oh wait i'm pregnant i'm super happy and then it's like this (laughs) pregnancy is a nightmare i'm in pain all the time nobody will help me oh wait now the pain's gone the baby is moving and then now my stomach is actually growing i don't look like an anorexic person anymore so she's happy again right right three months later rosemary receives a call informing her that hutch has died and she's almost shocked by this in a way that it's more like she had completely forgotten. About yeah, Hutch. I mean, I, I wouldn't say the news could be shocking if an old person is in a coma for months. I don't think the prognosis is very good. Yeah, I just mean like it's almost as yeah, if I, I agree. Like, they had made her forget and then right. this brings it all back home. At the funeral, Hutch's friend tells Rosemary that Hutch briefly regained consciousness at the end and said to make sure Rosemary got the book on his desk. In addition to the book, there was a message. The name is an anagram. Uh-oh. The name of the book is All of Them Witches, <laughs> which is a hilarious book title. And a crazy book to own. Or like if you're Hutch, like how do you stumble across this? It's sort of a history of witchcraft in America, maybe. But there's a lot tied in with the Bramford building where they live. I feel like particularly in the 90s... <laughs> on tv shows where it's like are you afraid of the dark or like appearing on things there's always like a store where they just sell these the craft yeah like occult things that's book of the dead or whatever or like i think those places did exist yeah which is cool i think they've been taken out of business by amazon now yeah that's true it's uh <laughs> you can just order your occult paraphernalia it's online. a very niche audience if you don't have a lot of covens in the area it's hard to survive. This just always reminds me of that part in Jennifer's body where Amanda Seyfried's character is like trying to get her boyfriend to like understand the situation. And she's yeah. like, I went through our library's occult section like three times. And he's just like, our library is an occult section? <laughs> right. Like what? <laughs> Adrian Marcato is the name of the famous witch and Satanist who used to live at the Bram. Rosemary takes out Scrabble trying yeah. to like rearrange letters to figure out what this anagram is and and you get like weird words in the mix like fall and hell well she's trying all of them witches yeah, first yeah. because the person who delivered this message to her didn't know what the name of meant and so she's like the name of the book and she's like yeah i guess she can't get anything out of all of them witches but then she's looking at the book again and eventually she figures out that Roman Castavet is an anagram for Stephen Marcato, the son of Adrian, mostly thanks to the clues underlined in the book. That's right. It's like Stephen is underlined. Hutch really had to lead her all the way to the water on this one. You would have thought he just would have written it in the book. Yeah. (laughs) It's like taking her 50% of the way there. Might as well go the whole way. I feel like Roman put this all together pretty quickly. Or not Roman, sorry, Hutch. Yeah. One wonders, though, if he was like already suspicious the whole time looking into some of this stuff and then i don't know who knows rosemary 
finally starts to put it all together. She suspects a coven that includes the Cassavits and their inner circle, though she does not seem to suspect Saperstein yet for whatever reason. Which is crazy. She believes they have sinister plans for her baby. She reads in this book that they use blood and flesh in rituals, especially the the blood and flesh of an infant. Rosemary does seem to have issues with the judge of character. <laughs> Guy comes home. She's like dropping all this on Guy. Guy at first is acting like she's crazy, but then he's sort of like, okay, well, she's figured out so much. I can't really deny all of this. So then right. he's like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's weird that that's his dad. And oh, he must be embarrassed. And she's like, well, don't you think they're the same? And he's just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but during yeah. this back and forth over the book, and her overhearing certain things next door, Guy drops like a big clue here where he's like, Dr. Shan plays the recorder at their meetings. It's like, well, how would he know that unless right, he had been right. at the meetings? Right. <laughs> she doesn't really like jump all over that. This, yeah. He insists she stops reading the book. And this, again, ties in with the control. He's almost like her parents saying, like, you are not allowed to do this. I'm going to hide this book. That's what he does. I'm going to put this somewhere where I think you can't reach it. Do you know who Roman really is? What do you mean, honey? He's Adrian Marcato's son. What? Come here. I'm going to show you something. Roman Castavet is Stephen Marcato, the arrest. It's from Hutch. Look. And look here. There he is when he was 13. See the eyes? What coincidence. In the same house? And look, look here. Soon after that, in August 1886, his son Stephen was born. 1886, got it? That makes him 79 now. No coincidence. No, I guess not. He's Stephen Marcato, all right. Poor old geezer with a crazy father like that. No wonder he switched his name around. You, you don't think he's the same? What do you mean, a witch? <laughs> Ro, are you kidding? Oh, Ro, honey. His, his father was a martyr to it. Do you know how he died? Honey, it's 1966. Th this was published in 1933. There were covens in Europe. That's what they're called, the, um, the, the congregation. Covens in Europe, in America, and in Australia, and they have one right here. That whole bunch, the parties with the singing and the flute and the chanting, those are espas or sabbaths or honey, whatever they're called. Honey, don't get excited, huh? Read what they do, Guy. They use blood in their rituals, and the blood that has the most power is baby's blood. And they don't just use the blood, they use the flesh, too. Rosemary, for God's sakes. They're not setting foot in this apartment ever again. And they're not coming within 50 feet of the baby. They're old people. They have a bunch of old friends. Dr. Shan happens to play the recorder. We're not taking any chances with the baby's safety. We're going to sublet and move out. We are not. Oh, yes, we now are. we'll talk about it later. And I don't think you ought to read any more of that. Last chapter. Not today, honey. But there is an anger noticeable in his dismissiveness here. It would seem that maybe Guy is not as practiced in the art of gaslighting as the Castavits and the others are. I'd say where so. He's yeah. sort of frustrated because he keeps running into a wall. He's not able to like steamroll over her concerns right. anymore. And he doesn't really know what to do because he hasn't had to do this his whole life or anything. Yeah, the rest of them, it's like if she starts catching on to anything, they're just sort of like, shut up, shut up, shut up. <laughs>
Rosemary tells Saperstein what she's figured out about Roman, and he seems sympathetic and understanding. He's like, oh, wow, yeah, that would be weird to live next to these people. But just between us, Roman is actually very ill and has no more than a month or two left. And so Saperstein's like, all right, I'm going to tell the Cassavets to leave and visit some of Roman's favorite cities, which is what he kind of wanted to do hasn't been because he wanted to be here for the birth of the baby as if that's normal yeah our neighbors need to be here for this and she's like oh that's great and so they do leave in a cab the woodhouses are there to see them off as if everything's normal but when they go back inside rosemary realizes that guy has thrown her book in the trash and this surprises her and upsets her because it's probably the first time where it's dawning on her that something is a miss really with guy like oh wait oh, why yeah. is he so against this and one of the things that she read in the book was about how they take a piece of somebody's possessions that's right and then and are able to like do, do something, something bad to them yeah which and i mean it actually like lays it out that like paralyze or blind them yeah she's thinking about death. the actor that yeah. was blinded that got guy the part and she's also thinking about hutch and his missing glove rosemary walks in the traffic seemingly it's a very out of nowhere moment i know she's like upset about the book and the next thing you know she's walking through traffic it almost feels like it feels like a dream actually just because of like the way it fits into it but certainly another part where the shot is super cool yeah this was 100 percent real these were not stunt drivers this was not a planned shot yeah you told me before the show when we were watching part of this and i was like blown away that seems insane that they would just do that Polanski got her to do it by saying no one would hit a pregnant woman because she was wearing like the pregnant stomach fair and no one did hit her but I think they ended up doing it like three times still feels like it was a risk Polanski himself had to carry the camera because no no one else was willing to walk into the street (laughs) too she goes to a bookstore to do her own research buy some other books she gets back to the apartment and then calls the actor who went blind this is where we first learn about guy and this other actor yeah, and exchanging this ties thing by that accident. happened yes the voice on the other end of the phone is tony curtis the famous actor from some like it hot and a million other things right a lot of other criterion movies jamie lee curtis is dead rosemary now seems convinced that guy is in on it too but for some reason <laughs> has not put it together that Saperstein is involved okay. i don't really know why i i know it's crazy he seems like the most obvious one yeah, because his advice was so bizarre, and the cast of it's recommended him, and she only knows him through them. By the way, do you need to carry the devil's child a certain way through a pregnancy for it to work out? Probably. This is very meticulous. She goes to Saperstein's office, and the receptionist remarks while Rosemary's waiting that Rosemary's perfume smells much better than before. Which is kind of a a weird thing to say. Well, everyone notices that smell when she's wearing that charm. Rosemary says it was from that charm, but she now threw it away. And the receptionist remarks that Dr. Saperstein should do the same, as he often smells like that, too. Oh, boy. And so now it finally clicks. Like, oh, fuck, they're all in on this. Yeah, yeah. Now realizing that Saperstein is a part of the coven as well, Rosemary flees the office, and then calls her old doctor, Dr. Hill. Yeah, and I, I would say this is haunting, because it is just like, where is she going to go? Exactly. This is the situation if you were to flee your husband for any reason, 
let alone this right. crazy supernatural one where she just has no options. We don't know if she has a family. We don't know anything about it. And the one nitpick you could have is... I thought she had siblings that had kids. I thought she talked... She does, but like she doesn't recall the them kid. or anything. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's like, why doesn't she call somebody else besides yeah. Dr. Hill? Somebody that she can trust and knows Dr. Hill 100%. is her next of kin. There's this feeling of building paranoia. She's in the phone booth. There's a Saperstein lookalike who's actually played by one of the producers, William Castle, who's like lurking around outside. You yeah. think it might be him from behind. It is creepy. This is almost like Hitchcockian, I feel like. This whole sequence with her in the payphone. But she gets Hill to meet her at his office and she spills the story to him and admittedly no matter what your thoughts are on like this whole thing and we must believe women or the idea of gaslighting whatever she does sound like a lunatic she's just spilling out all of this stuff like a mile a minute it sounds so crazy yeah where she's talking about witches and a coven and they want to take her baby it's so off the wall that I'm not necessarily excusing what Dr. Hill does because it seems like maybe he would reach out to like actual authorities instead, but he doesn't believe it. Oh, yeah. It's so weird. Right. Can I keep this book, though? He acts as if he believes her at least enough, and it seems like he's going to help. This is just like so sad. (laughs) It is just like so sad. She thinks she's got a lifeline here. But instead, Dr. Hill does what he thinks is right and calls Dr. Saverstein, who then arrives with Guy. Hill turns her over to the very people she's trying to escape. Yeah. And I feel like Saperstein is breaking down the wall here a little bit or the uh, facade in his conversation with her here. He's being more aggressive with her. Kind of. They're like kind of pissed that she's out running around talking about witchcraft. A little bit. Yeah. But this plays into everything we've talked about because even this shot of the four of them walking out of Hill's office, she's got. Dr. Hill in front oh, yeah. of her, Saperstein on the side of her, like holding her arm, and Guy behind her. She's like trapped, encircled by these men and can't get out. She's unable to escape. She has no options. The men are in charge. She's been turned over to men because, of course, the men in her life are in charge of her. Oh, yeah. Is basically the idea. Here, this crazy bitch is running around. Come get her. I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> <laughs> it's as if he's calling her dad. Right. Quietly resigned to her fate under the threat of a mental institution, she's taken back to the Bram. Guy and Dr. Saperstein assure her that neither she nor her baby will be harmed. Oh, good. But when they get back to the Bram, Rosemary makes a break for it and tries to lock herself in her apartment. Yeah, kind of a crazy move. What's the long-term plan here? Well, she calls her friend on the phone, and I guess she's like finally reaching out to somebody who she knows would not be involved with this. But at this point in the game, it seems a little late. Yeah, yeah. Unbeknownst to her, there's this entryway into the apartment that she doesn't know about, and (laughs) the coven members get in. Yeah, like a creepy scene. She's in full-on panic mode trying to make calls, but the way the camera is, you can see behind her and just two dudes kind of like casually walking by. Right, yeah. They end up sedating her and restraining her as she goes into labor. She's hysterical at this point. It's a very troubling scene of her screaming and being held down. Oh, I'd say so. It's not too unlike the uh, similar scene when she was on a bed earlier. 
Now, what do you make of this little moment here where she sort of wakes up and Guy is telling her that the baby is fine and that it's a boy and all that stuff? Do you think that's – is that a dream? It has Why to be. is he telling yeah. her that? Right. Because then later, once she's awake, Saperstein tells her the baby was born, stillborn, and she, of course, freaks out and she's screaming, you're lying, you're witches, you're lying. But after that, they sedate her again, and now she's in this extended yeah. recovery time, lying in bed. They're, they're just like, enough, enough. <laughs> I she's mean, basically confined to this bed with a alternating, rotating cast of characters from the to building to like watch over her. Check in on her. Also, are taking milk from her. Yeah. It's all under the guise of like taking care of her, but really they're just making sure that she doesn't do anything. That's right. They're like basically babysitting her. Rosemary hears a baby crying, though. She becomes suspicious of this. She stops taking the pills that they're giving her. What do you think, like, guys take in this whole thing is... We know what he got out of it, obviously, with his acting career, but I guess, are are you locked in from that moment? Like, he, he can't get out. He has to keep going and hanging out with these people. Yeah, I think the idea is that he likes it. He, okay. he got what he wanted, and he yeah. sees the power that they're able to So he wield. is into it. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Laura Louise is taking her breast milk away, but then there's a little bit of a giveaway when she's also taking some dishes, and Rosemary goes to put a spoon into the milk, and then yeah. Laura Louise kind of is like, no, don't do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Even though she it. already said she was just going to throw it away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Rosemary does react to that as if she's sort of, know something yeah. is up. Guy says that there are new tenants upstairs that have a baby, but Rosemary's not buying it. She ends up finding the secret door in their closet, and this ties in with what was going on with the previous tenant and pushing that big piece of furniture in front of the closet because clearly she was trying to keep people out. She knew that right. there was that door that connected to the cast of its place. Yeah, I know. Thinking about like whatever was going on beforehand... Yeah, your imagination can kind of like run wild with like what the scenario was. All right. Rosemary gets a knife and then she decides she's going to sneak over to the Cassavets because she's convinced that her baby is over there. She comes into a hallway, walks down the hallway. There's some disturbing paintings on the wall. And then she eventually comes across the coven party, for lack of a better term, at the Cassavets house. And there's this black bassinet done up ridiculous with an upside down cross like hanging over <laughs> oh yeah right if this wasn't this seems goofy the thing that invented all of this shit you would be like this is a little much yeah, yeah. at a certain point because there is a certain amount of horror in something appearing mundane yeah. and being normal at first but like when you broadcast out how strange it is it kind of becomes less I agree. horrific where you're like oh god I think the initial feeling in the room is that creepy unsettling feeling just because yeah these people like hanging out it's not really like that much of a misstep or anything but it, I think I agree with you though in future films in more modern times I think if you went this over the top with some of that stuff it would seem silly this whole thing was kind of reminding me of Suspiria a little bit though I know it's the Cassavetes apartment, but it almost feels like she's going into like a secret room. Yeah, a little bit. The guests, including Guy and Laura Louise and some of the other people, all like react to seeing oh, yeah. her, and they're all very surprised. Well, Guy like... is just caught with his hand in the cookie jar type yeah. thing, where he's just like pacing around the apartment after this, can't really face her. 
when Roman tries to say something to her, she says, shut up, you're in Dubrovnik, I don't hear you, which That's I right. think is funny. <laughs> it's such a great response. Like, yeah. you left, you're out of town, I don't hear you. Right. <laughs> but they don't stop her or try to stop her, even though she's got this big knife. Rosemary looks in at the baby. That and this is... is like the most iconic shot of the right. movie is yeah. her turning away because it's so... Her eyes are so great here, and she doesn't even like scream at first or anything. It's yeah. just a silent, horrified reaction to what she sees in oh, yeah. the crib. Rosemary, go back to bed. You know you're not supposed to be up and around. Is the mother? Uh, Rosemary. Shut up. Rosemary. Shut up. You're in Dubrovnik. I don't hear you. Son of mortal woman. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Satan is his father, and his name is Adrian. He shall overthrow the mighty and lay waste their temples. He shall redeem the despised and wreak vengeance in the name of the burned and the tortured. Hail Adrian! Hail Satan! Hail Satan! He chose you out of all the world, out of all the women in the whole world. He chose you. He arranged things because he wanted you to be the mother of his only living son. His power is stronger than stronger. His might shall last longer than longer. Yes, Satan. No. It can't be. No. Look at his hands. And his feet. Oh, God. God is dead! Satan lives! The year is one! Polanski made a, an unbelievably great choice here, which is do not show the baby. Oh, right, yeah. Because the baby is described in the book. Okay. But he realized that they weren't going to be able to do it in a, in way, a way that looked... It would just ruin everything. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Her reaction to it is perfect. Great facial acting. What have you done to him? What have you done to its eyes? And then Roman says, he's got his father's eyes. And she's like, what do you mean? Guy's eyes are normal. And he just, he doesn't even hold back. He's like, Satan is his father. Not Guy. (laughs) He came up from hell and begat a son. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then everybody's getting into it. They're all getting riled up. Yeah. It's year one. Everyone has things to chant and say. Everyone's like, hail Satan. Watching all those old people yell, hail Satan, is so weird. Yeah, I know it is. And unnerving because you always, mistakenly, because it's not true, but it's like think a stereotype. Old you think of sweet. old people as more likely to be conservatively religious right, right. and all that stuff. And 
not mixed up in things like this. Yeah, Even yeah. though that doesn't make any sense because people get old. No it matter could who be they anyone. Are. Yeah. But yeah, especially in '68, where this kind of stuff. I know we talked about that a lot in The Exorcist, and The Exorcist takes this to like a whole other explicit level, where this is more like implied and subtle. But even having people yell "Hail Satan" over and over in a mainstream movie in the 60s was very shocking and it's why it captured the public's imagination and i think you know there were a whole host of imitators that came later like the omen or even the exorcist that dealt with satan and satanic stuff but there were also a slew of grindhouse drive-in style movies that dealt with the devil satan slaves the mark (laughs) of the devil like all these random titles and stuff because people have always been fascinated with it, and it seems like the ultimate in evil. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's uh, how do you combat that? And the idea of having the beast come up and rape a woman, and then she gets pregnant with a child, even if it's not Satan, the idea of like an unholy child being birthed from some horrible thing was done then a million times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Even in something like The Fly or like Demon Seed or something like it becomes a trope of horror of like, yeah. there is nothing more there, horrific than in it, a foreign thing being inside of you. Yeah, I know. And there's like, this is almost like a body horror element to it of nothing horrible happens to her body. But the idea that like this monster is growing inside of her and guy trying to minimize it being like, well, they promised they wouldn't hurt you and they didn't really. And yeah. it's just like, what the fuck? Oh, I know. I do love that. She just like spits in his face. And that is the thing where I do feel like she is sort of, this is a little bit of liberation for her somehow. Just breaking free of the guy thing here a little bit because he is like, yeah, I mean, it all kind of worked out. (laughs) Yeah, well, think of it like this. What if you would have had the baby and then lost it? Like it would have died or something. Yeah, yeah. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) It's like he acts like he's making like good points. (laughs) And she's just like, what? (laughs) And so the ending of it here is Roman asking rosemary to be a mother to baby adrian yeah he's like why don't you help us out you don't have to really join but you know be a mother to your baby laura louise and minnie are too old it's not right (laughs) minnie from across the room it's like what yeah laura louise is like such a fucking cunt during this oh i know shut up with your oh gods we'll kill you we don't need the milk milk." and the other ones are all like you shut up this is his mother yeah I think, in at least in portrayals and movies and shit, I don't know what it's like in real life. The satanic stuff is always like presented as like a an inverse of traditional Catholicism or Christianity. So I, I know, like in the Catholic religion, the Mother Mary is like a huge oh yeah figure, and so I'm wondering if that's like the the parallel here, where she's supposed to have like this sort of high standing because it certainly seems like some of the members feel well that's that way. the thing yeah i i think so and then also when she walks in with the knife you would think they would all be like flipping out but they let her walk right up to well laura louise crib. screams yeah and points at her right but yeah everyone else is sort of like d- doesn't know how to react to it i know but you would think this is like the greatest thing ever to them this baby <laughs> you would think they would be like freaking out with her getting close to it with the knife but eh. and so the movie ends where she kicks Laura Louise to the curb because she's rocking the baby too fast and Rosemary comes in and takes over and the implication is clear that she has chosen to be a mother to this child, this demon child, where she's 
willing to ignore how horrific it is in order to get what she's always wanted, which is to be a mother and to have yeah. the, the traditional things in life, despite the fact that it's so corrupted. Kind of a sad trade-off. Yeah, it's such a weird ending where you're like, okay, well... So I guess she's just in. Other than Terry and Hutch, like no one's really like died, and it's not even like super jump scary or anything. It's almost like the guy explanation ending. You're kind of just like it's not nauseous. that bad, right? Where you're just like, oh, what a horrible turn of events. Yeah, it does send you down a, a path though, because you're like, boy, how does this all play out? Like, where are we headed with this? Like, what does the devil's offspring actually do? They made a movie in the '70s where I think Patty Duke plays Rosemary and it's like a sequel. I can't remember what it's it's like look what happened to Rosemary's baby or something like that. Where Adrian is like an adult. Oh boy. It doesn't really make any sense though because it came out like less than ten years later, yeah, but he's yeah. an adult right. in it. it. It's like okay. And it was terrible, I guess, and it has sort of been buried and ignored. I don't know if you could even find it anywhere to watch it. It it was not well received. Okay. And that was like made for T V but Ira Levin did write a sequel novel not that long ago. Oh, okay. I mean, he's dead now, but yeah. it came out maybe in the 90s or in the 2000s. Okay, not called that long Son ago. Son of Rosemary or something like that. It got mixed reviews, but it did sell fairly well because this was a big book at the time. I don't think there's any desire to like continue yeah. the story. I think it just has to end like this because the idea of what this would go on to be what's the story there yeah michael bay's company that remade like nightmare on elm street and friday the 13th and texas chainsaw and all that stuff was like going to remake this in the late 2000s it didn't happen then they did like a tv remake with zoe saldana yeah which uh, you were saying to me before the show i have no memory of that even being a thing i remember it happening i never saw any of it i don't really know if it was well reviewed or not but i was saying that I don't really see this as a modern story unless it's completely like retooled and reworked. The closest you could come is trying to set up a situation similar to what you have in Swallow, which is you have a woman that has clearly like no family. She's living in an isolated house, like far out in the middle of nowhere, kind of where there's no friends around because yeah, in modern times, with something like Rosemary's Baby, you would be like, okay, well, how does the internet factor in? How do cell phones factor in? Yeah, and I, it just seems like people have more ways of escaping. And women in 2020, I'm not going to sit here and say that things are all the way where they should be, but it, you don't have that same different. thing where yeah. like women really don't have a lot of options. Like Tons of people get divorced now. Oh, and yeah. It's not the same thing it's not the ordeal it would be in the mid 60s i think this definitely works better as an inspiration or an influence on modern movies but the idea of like really remaking this content yeah i don't see it as much but i do think the the whole style to it the feel to it that build i think it has inspired a lot of the the modern horror movies where you know someone might say like this isn't scary and it might not necessarily be scary but it just has that overbearing feeling of dread really that kind of hangs steady through the movie and i i think rosemary's baby captures that and i think you know some of the movies we've seen over the last few years like hereditary certainly comes to mind that is more similar to that and not really like built off of jump scares yeah for sure so after the movie was finished became like a phenomenon 
but as is the case with movies like this or The Exorcist or The Omen or any of these things, anything that deals with Satan, there's always a lot of controversy overhanging it, certain people not thrilled about it. And so when certain events happened in real life, people try to tie it in as if the production was cursed. A a year later, Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, murdered in what seemed to be a very occult-like ritual. I mean, obviously... I think it was more random than maybe people realized at the time, but it seemed very much tied in with the occult. Obviously very horrible. It seemed like Roman Polanski, from what I read, was just completely disgusted with the way that like the media handled that whole the just the idea that this was something that happened because of rosemary's baby sure yeah and the composer on rosemary's baby died within like a year also uh, very young the details aren't well known because it happened in poland and i think he fell at a party or something and went into a coma and died which was my future weird because it's similar to how like hutch died or something right that's true yeah Different things happen here or there, and then, as I said, John Lennon murdered outside of the Dakota in much the same place where in the movie they reference Stephen Marcato, or Roman Cassavet's father, is murdered outside the building. Yeah, that is weird. Different things like that, and then the Beatles, Helter Skelter, ties in with Manson, so people like to draw these different conclusions or whatever. that's fine. It's also weird. (laughs) That's fine. That's nice. It's also weird to think about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate being characters in that movie. It's 1969. Like this would be one year after he's made this movie. It's just sort of a weird. Well, yeah, that's what uh, Rick Dalton says. That's right. You know, he was like the hottest director in the world at the time. Yeah. And would go on to make Chinatown, which is also considered a masterpiece. I think the rest of his filmography is sort of hit or miss. Some he has probably four or five. Yeah classic films that are very good and then i definitely give him there's like a a few that are good and then he's also got some ones that are not really great at all i give him credit for being able to dabble in a lot of different genres yeah there was pushback against robert evans for being like well why does why do we want to have this guy's first american feature be a horror film this is so weird because a lot of times if your first thing that people know of you is horror then that's what you are, and you can never escape it, no matter how hard that's you try. Right. Yeah, it's that's still a thing, I would say. Yeah, he managed to do it because I think this was so artsy fartsy compared to what people thought horror movies were. That's true. Yeah, and it just was like so well made, and was such a big hit too, which helps. All right, well, no recommendations this week, so I would say go ahead and check out those lists I tweeted out <laughs> at greatest pod that will keep people you busy. still working through that list <laughs> well i think the goal should be you should look at them if, if there's i'm sure most people haven't seen at least some of them if not all of them yeah and i would say you know maybe check out one or two if, if you're like sitting at home during this semi lockdown pandemic time and you're like hey you know i want to watch a scary movie for halloween there's a lot of alternate choices that are a little bit off the beaten path there you go but not too weird for the most part some of them are kind of weird i'm not gonna recommend it but i did watch uh psycho 2 uh last night that was on the lists i believe oh good yeah i think i put that on which we did for the show a while back but that that's certainly a fun horror movie yeah so thank you for listening we have two more episodes left in the greatest october 
We're almost to episode 200. For those of you who have been following the show for a while, you'll remember that after our greatest Octobers, we usually take a little bit of a breather. I think this year will be the same. So after episode 200, we probably will take a break until around Thanksgiving or something like that. But we'll see how it goes. Yeah, always need some time. Anyway, thank you for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Podbean. Check us out on Twitter at Greatest Pod, and we'll talk to you real soon. God, that was strange to see you again. Introduced by a friend of a friend. Smiled and said, Yes, I think we've met before. In that instant, it started to pour. Captured a taxi despite all.
I'm here to pick up my new plates. My name's Kramer, Cosmo Kramer. Kramer. All right. All right. Sign right here, please. Okay. All right. Thanks. Ass man. No, no, these don't belong to me. I'm, uh, I'm not the ass man. I think there's been a mistake. What's your name again? Cosmo Kramer. Cosmo Kramer. You are the ass man. No, I'm not the ass man. Well, well as far as the state of New York is concerned, you are. 